The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Again, welcome everyone. And a big, wholehearted welcome to anybody who's here for the first time today. We understand, I think uh, all of us, we understand that it's not always easy to walk into a new space. And uh, so anybody here for the first time brave enough to walk in, big welcome. Please stay for the potluck. Usually right around the solstices and equinoxes, we have our community potluck four times a year. So we'll have that today right after. And the other thing we do at that quarterly time is we take about five or ten minutes to recite the three refuges and the five precepts. And this is a traditional recitation done really in all the different Buddhist traditions for all these many centuries that these teachings have been around. So it's not really specific to any one lineage. And it's just a way of, in a community setting, remembering what we're taking refuge in and then recommitting to non-harming. So I'll go through that right before we end at 11.45. And uh, we've been looking at Saito Utejaniya's teachings. He's a wonderful Burmese teacher, Buddhist monk, that many of us have been able to practice with. He has recently been coming to the States more regularly, So, but a lot of people, even people in this community, have gone to Burma to practice with him at the Suiu Min Monastery near Rangoon. And he has a very powerful and simple way of teaching. And so we've been reviewing some of these teachings. And if you'd like to read a transcription of the instructions he gave on a retreat I was at a couple years ago, uh, just go to the Common Ground blog. And there are his first morning instructions, about 10 pages. And it's a really good summary of the practice about how to cultivate and sustain present moment awareness, not just in formal sitting time. He's really into teaching in a way that's seamless. It works when you're doing your formal meditation, works when you're walking to the grocery store, works all day long, even including in times when you're in conversation with another person. And ideally, that's the kind of technique, let's call it, a way of practicing that we want. Because why would we rely on 30 minutes that we have for formal meditation when we can rely on our 18 hours of being awake each day? Right? Just a lot more time to develop momentum in this present moment awareness that really changes things, not just in our own heart, but in the world around us. This is how we take care of the world, is by taking care of our own heart. All the seeds of violence, all the seeds of racism and injustice, they don't exist abstractly out there, you know, like some cloud that is affecting humanity, whatever evilness, you know, whatever injustice, whatever delusion, fear-based delusion exists, it exists as tendencies and cumulatively in our hearts. Where else would it be? Right? These predispositions, these cultural biases, these whatever, they exist here. It's the only place they can exist. And so the the learning about them, the being honest and real about them, and learning and, and learning to recognize them honestly, 
is how we have some freedom. It's not like I can make my heart be different than it is, the conditioning. But I can understand the conditioning of my heart, the tendency to be afraid, to be angry, to be dismissive, to see things particular ways. Right? And this, you know, we really seen it, fortunately, I mean, as painful as it is, it's fortunate that it's a little bit more on the surface around things like sexism and racism and other kinds of established forms of oppression here in our community and then, of course, in the wider world, how people with power misuse that power because, we're, because of fear, because of greed. All of this can be directly, immediately observed in our hearts. And it's not just that we make the world, we have to do this to make the world a better place. It is a liberating process for ourselves to be more and more honest. Whether your conditioning is more around being a victim or your conditioning is more about being an oppressor, you know, and it's probably mixed for most of us, to some degree at least. But waking up to this doesn't just make the world a better place, it also liberates our heart. And we really need to understand the connection between this, what we might call spiritual work or internal work, and the work of making the world a better place. And they're not like two different spheres we have to choose, or I'm going to be a spiritual person, or I'm going to be an activist and make the world a better place. It's really about doing both. And when we encounter the messy places in the world, in our relationships, in our families, in our societies, then that reveals, right? We, that's how we see the connection between the seeds that are deep in our heart and our mind <clears throat> and how that then manifests as these systemic problems of injustice and ignorance in our sort of wider world. And the same thing, when we do the inner work, you know, we're sitting, we're on retreat, we're studying the nature of our heart and mind, and then we, and we see the movement like of closing down or striking out or judging or uh, throwing a group of people out of our heart, having a fixed view about things. When we see that in the sort of microscopic way operating in our heart, then we start to make the connection. Oh, that's how the world, that's why the world looks the way it, it does because of this very intimate dynamic I'm recognizing in my heart. When you, you know, when you add on to that, so many beings basically doing the same thing, but then you get a world that operates in the way that this world operates. Oh, and we start building bridges between what we see here, what we see there, what we see there, how it informs and colors what's here, reinforces here. And the Buddhist, the Buddha's way that he suggests that really turns out to be more transforming is not to be afraid of this messiness, but to realize, and this is important, it's not work we have to do that we wish we didn't have to do because it is difficult. No, it is difficult, but it's liberating work. So just because it's really painful to do the work, humiliating, re-traumatizing, depending on the kind of work we're doing in any given moment, because the work is painful doesn't mean it isn't liberating. It's liberating. I mean, this is we, we've learned this in different places in our life, that the difficult work often 
we're so grateful to have been able to do it because we feel more free, more light, more responsive, more intimate, connected because of the difficult work we've done, the difficult conversations we've been willing to have, the pain we've been willing to acknowledge and show up for, the humiliation and shame we didn't run away from, but we learned something about it. Oh, this is what it feels like. And when we're able to have some stability with these you know, with this pain, then we see how it's nature and not self. If we reflexively think it's about me, then it neurotically seems to make sense to bury it because I do not, I cannot handle that. I don't want to see that. But when we realize that as painful as it is, that it isn't personal, that yeah, it's painful, but the way the heart feels, the way the world is, God set in motion in impersonal ways. It's real, the suffering, the injustice, the pain in our heart, the neurotic patterns in our personality. It's real in the sense that it's to be felt. But it's not really personal. Nobody made themselves a jerk. Nobody chooses to be ignorant. It's just a natural unfolding. But the pain is real. So in acknowledging the pain, we begin to correct that wrong approach, which is to not pay attention, to not be honest, to not see the conditional or interdependent nature of ignorance, fear, greed, anger, hate, right, judgment. We have to see the interdependent, the sort of web-like, it's natural, there's no one cause, but, but we have all of us together, we have every incentive to wake up to this. We just don't realize it, like how much freedom is available, how much healing is available through doing the difficult work of stabilizing awareness, cultivating the value of present moment awareness, being willing to feel what we feel, see what we see, name how it is, to do it individually in our own sort of spiritual practice, to do it collectively in all of our communities, to engage this awakening process. And I think we, you know, all of us leaders, all of us practitioners, we should be really honest about this is the most difficult work and as it's said often in the Buddhist tradition, the hard way is the easy way. You know, doing this difficult work of unearthing, opening up, naming, feeling, being patient with, learning to be fearless with, learning that the pain of humiliation, the pain of shame, the pain of rage, the pain of anger, opening to that, being willing to feel that is liberating. It doesn't actually cause destruction. It seems like that's the that's the deluded thought that if I open to this it will smother me, it will overwhelm me. So it may take some time. Initially we might just orbit it, you know, just in a safe distance, just knowing that that pain, the healing that's being asked to be seen, or the wound, let's say, that's being asked to be addressed, just knowing it's sort of in the vicinity. 
And then we mature into a willingness to touch it and then to turn away and to touch it and turn away, that kind of touch and go. Well, we're learning through our own direct experimentation that it's safe to feel. It's safe to be a sensitive human being. And in particular, it's safe to move into the territory of ambiguity and uncertainty. You know, around things like injustice, and it just seems especially ripe with the recent, uh, you know, finding with Philandro's murder or killing, it just seems more out there, that kind of confusion and ambiguity and, you know, even watching the video and... uh you know, it's like our mind wants to know, like, guilty or not guilty, or, but it's, it's always ambiguous. And yet we have to decide as a community what we do, right? We take into account the history. We take into account the information. And we're practicing not being paralyzed by uncertainty and ambiguity because it's always this way. It's not just in these sort of sticky places. It's true about marriage or committed relationships or what am I going to eat today for lunch? We don't ever in life have perfect certainty. This is the right way or this is the wrong way. Yet all day long, all life long, we have to choose. And so this is this difficult area where like how to be a human being in an imperfect world where there is injustice and these sort of historic traumas that have not been healed, how to stay present. It's not like someone's going to paint a perfect picture of like how I, how I deal with my complicit, complicity with you know, racism or economic injustice. Or, there's not like a, a map to follow with this stuff. But yet, because there's not a map, we don't get the excuse, well, then I don't have to deal with it. Right? So this is the place, all of us, each of us in our own particular you know, life circumstance, cultural circumstance, have to deal with. Now, the interesting thing is we, we want to label that, oh, that's difficult work. Oh, maybe I do have to do it, but it's difficult work. So I think the difference that the point I'm making this morning coming from the Buddhist teachings is, yeah, it's difficult work and it's liberating work. It's like it's a privilege to do this work, as difficult as it is, as confusing and ambiguous as it is. To not do it, you know, to imagine taking the easy way is actually the road to more, sort of a more narrow, more constricted, more diluted way of being. Nobody consciously chooses that way. We just do it out of habit. So there's another way, which is, you know, Little by little, we have our daily sit, we have the rest of our day, and we practice in our daily formal meditation time. You know, we sit up, right? It's symbolic, the posture that we use. We sit up right in the middle of our life, feeling whatever is there moving in us, around us. We practice being awake, not in some trance-like state. Often I recommend to people at the end of the sit to Take some time. Don't just get up, but take some time with your eyes open. You're not sort of in a secluded place, but you're there awake, practicing being balanced, clear, sensitive, right there. 
just letting your mind and body do whatever it's going to do, but you're relaxed, you're soft, alert. And, and in that relatively simple environment, practicing being unafraid, practicing letting whatever needs to move, move without making anything move, just letting everything happen. And that's a nice transition for getting up from your sitting posture and then starting to live your day, whatever that's going to look like for you that day. And this is how I think things begin to change in the wider world. More and more people understanding that there's really not, we're not capable of forward movement in these places where there's a lot of suffering unless we change the dynamic. If we're operating out of fear, we just keep redoing, you know, the patterns tend to repeat themselves. So we have to, this is the, why it's important that we all learn in little ways how to be a leader. And basically, not a leader in terms of telling people what they should do, a leader in terms of modeling non-fear and modeling doing the work of being honest and basically unearthing whatever is here to unearth. Some of you know Marlon James. I just caught a little bit of his interview. I don't know if it was Minnesota Public Radio or was it National Public Radio that was interviewing him this morning. He's a well-known author now, but he teaches at McAllister, so he's one of our local celebrities. He's Jamaican originally, and uh, what was the name of his book, Lynn? Seven Killings? Yeah, based in uh, some contemporary history in Jamaica. And, uh, so he's uh, African-Jamaican, African-American now. I'm assuming he's an American citizen. And... Uh, yeah, and he was just talking about uh, this, the stickiness and about, uh, like he used the example of imagining like if our culture said to women uh, who are experiencing sexual abuse, being raped, that putting like the healing on them. Yeah, you need to lead us, tell us how to address the problem of rape. And he used that example in terms of racial injustice, like, white people have to figure out how to do their own work. Right? We have to see the seeds here in our own heart. And this is Dharma work. This is not like something apart from our Dharma practice. And it'd be the same thing, like, well, tell us what to do. This is sort of a, a common, like, you know, or, yeah, whatever. Where's your leadership? Tell, you know, kind of. But we have to see, because the roots of oppression, basically, they're everywhere including our hearts. And in the same way that men need to take a look at, like, why is it that women get raped or women get abused or women's voices aren't heard? What is it about this conditioning? And to see that as my liberating work, not just I'm doing it because there are women who are suffering or there are people of color who are being oppressed in our culture, but really starting to see it as Ah, this is liberating. It's so painful, but it's, I see no other way to be free than to begin to acknowledge it. So um, when we do the refuges and precepts, we're really kind of acknowledging this wider, like the whole picture of our work. Because it's very easy in Buddhist circles to see our practice as something we do for 30 minutes in the moment, in the morning, where we get kind of secluded and peaceful 
And then we end our sit. We've got that little peaceful vibe there in the body and the mind. And it's just sort of sort of a nice counterweight to the coffee we have. You know, the coffee sort of... <laughs> and then the meditation sort of settles us down and we find that sweet spot where there's just enough of the enlivening energy and enough of the settling energy and we feel like we can handle the day. And, you know, I'm not saying that that approach to meditation is like evil or bad, but it's such a limited understanding of what the Buddha was teaching. He really was teaching, pointing us in a direction where we can be in the middle of this messy and imperfect world, but not be afraid of it. And really our participation can be a thing of beauty. And we're not demanding the world all of a sudden be perfect, right? Because the freedom isn't dependent on the world being perfect. The freedom is dependent on being honest about what's here, seeing it clearly and, uh, and doing the healing work and modeling the healing work and finding an enlivening, enlivening energy so that we're not like participating in order for it to be done. But because like compassion is an enlivening energy, so we're not in a hurry for the world to be healed of all suffering. Of course, we, des- we desire that suffering ceases, but we're not getting exhausted in our participation and our showing up because doing the work is enlivening. And that's really Saida's point. You know, when he talks about right effort, like even in terms of a sit or being on retreat for a day, you want to make effort in a way that's enlivening, not in a way that's exhausting. Like, oh God, I'm 25 minutes into my 30-minute sit and I'm exhausted. But then that's when you should look like, well, what kind of effort am I making and why is it exhausting? Because that liberating effect I'm talking about, that's the same as getting enlivened by doing the work so that there's a kind of an inspiring energy that gives you the energy to keep doing this difficult work. Otherwise, we get burnt out. And this happens for all of us, regardless if you're, you know, what where you're coming from in terms of doing this healing work. Why isn't it enlivening? What am I misunderstanding about the work? Because it's enlivening when we understand that it's healing for me, when I'm not just doing it because I have to do it, but when I see how it's connected to the freeing up of my own heart. So maybe you need to back away until you really see that that work is healing and is conducive to safety, not to exposure. And this is especially important for people who are coming from the traumatized end of doing the work, where the work is bringing up some of their own trauma. Then then it's important to understand how you can be safe. What do you need to be safe in doing this work so that you're not feeling forced into the work but it's a conscious choice because, to some degree at least, you see how it's liberating, it's energizing, it's healing. And that will draw you further in. So we'll open up and do the refuges and precepts now. Maybe afterward there'll be a little bit of time for some questions, but let's do this first. And like I said, we do this once a month. It's on page 35. I did, oh, I did bring my glasses. Good. So 
in the tradition, we the first thing we want to do is acknowledge our teacher. This person we refer to as the Buddha, but that's not his name. The Buddha, it just means awakening. So the Buddha, that's a title for a person who was awake. And we see him in our tradition as our teacher. He's a human being who not only woke up, but what makes somebody a Buddha is not just that they wake up. Because if you just wake up, but you didn't have teachings... I mean, if you woke up, but you had teachers, like if we woke up, we wouldn't be a Buddha. We'd be, in the tradition, we'd be an arhat, somebody who's awake, but had teachings to help them wake up. So a Buddha is someone who woke up without the teachings, right? Because there always had to be someone who did it first. And you had the capacity to articulate what happened to you in a way that was useful for other people so they could wake up. So it's kind of a formal title. Now, in the tradition, there were many Buddhas. He wasn't the first. But then the teachings get lost. People forget about them. So then somebody else has to wake up without the help of teachings. So the first thing we do is we thank, you know, our historic teacher, the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, that he woke up and he could articulate what happened to him in a way that's useful for us 2,500 years later in a different culture, different time. And yet these teachings are still really functional, useful for us. And then we take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. We take refuge in that awakened potential of our own heart. That's what Buddha means. Dhamma means we take refuge in the way it is because that awakened part is going to be intimate with the way it is, the messiness of our body-mind, the messiness of our world. That's Dhamma or Dharma. And we take refuge in Sangha. When a human being is awake and being intimate with the way it is for them, then they're Sangha in that moment. Their actions, their words, the way they are in the world is a thing of beauty. And we take refuge in little moments of seeing somebody, whether it's you or another person, who is Buddha-knowing Dhamma. Those uh, capacity to be awake, being intimate. And then your response will be a thing of beauty. And that's something to take refuge in. We see people being kind. We see people being fearless. Not continuously, but in moments. And we can take refuge in that. It's an inspiration for us. So that's what we mean by Sangha. Generally, we refer to our spiritual community as Sangha. But, you know, we're not all Sangha when we say Sangha. Like some of us are being neurotic or fear, fearful or whatever. But when you see somebody really being wise or compassionate in a moment, that's what we mean by Sangha. Like, oh, I'm so glad I recognize that wisdom in you or that wisdom in me, right? Because sometimes we're Sangha. We're the one who's manifesting some wisdom or compassion in a moment. So we do it three times, and then we'll do the five precepts, and these are basically our training in non-harming. And so we need five community members to read Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk getting close to the end of his life now. Um, But uh, he made some comments, and we generally read that. So if I could have five volunteers to read after each of the five precepts, his comments and quotes. Anybody want to do number one, first precept? Yeah, Louise, number two, somebody want to do that? Thanks. And Corey, number three. Lynn, you want to do four? And then Dan, why don't you do five? Good, so let's do this together. Just follow along if you're new. We do do a lot of it in Pali because regardless of where these teachings have gone around the world, people generally, just to connect with this lineage of people who find these teachings valuable, to connect with the wider Buddhist community, we could say we do it in Pali. 
You can put your hands together if you'd like. Let's honor our teacher, the Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato Udang saranang dhammang saranang gachami sangang saranang gachami dutiampi udang saranang gachami dutiampi dhammang saranang gachami Dutiampi sangang saranang gachami. Tatiampi udang saranang gachami. Tatiampi damang saranang gachami. Tatiampi sangang saranang gachami. I take refuge in the Buddha, trusting inherent peace and freedom a heart free from clinging. So take a few moments and just reflect on this awakening quality in your own mind and heart. This capacity to be present. And then the second refuge, I take refuge in the Dharma, trusting mindful awareness of the way things are. We reflect on that for a moment, the way things are, the messiness of the present moment, the world, our willingness to open, to meet it. And then the third refuge, I take refuge in the Sangha, trusting those with wisdom and compassion who show us the way. Our wise friends, family teachers, And then we'll do the five precepts. First we'll do Pali, then we'll read the English, and then we'll listen to someone in the community read Thich Nhat Hanh's comments. So the first. Panati pata where amani sikapadang samariyami. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. We just reflect for a few seconds on this, what it might look like in our own life. And we'll do the second now. Adina dana where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Cultivating loving kindness 
learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal, not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on Earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness practices found in Sunday's practice. And now the third. Kame su michachara where amani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Now the fourth. Musawada where Amani Sikapadang Samariami. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. Now the fifth. Sura Maria Majapamaratana where Amani Sikapadang Samariami. I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants.
And now we finish up with what's at the bottom of 37. May my conduct conduce to attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. Taking refuge, we can read this together, taking refuge, undertaking the five mindfulness training, and practicing the way of awareness and insight gives rise to benefits without limit. I offer to share all blessings and merit with my parents, teachers, family, friends, and with all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions into happiness, peace, liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy. So that's our quarterly refuge and precept ceremony. And you can find the chant book on the website if you want to download your own copy. And uh, the office is in the process of revising that. So we're going to have a really wonderful guidebook to the whole community that will include this that will be out probably within a month or two. And that will be online as a PDF document that you can print your own copy of. Um, and we'll have lots of information about the practice and including the refuges and precepts. But a couple of announcements before we have our potluck. Uh, Most of you know, but in case you're new to the community, everything here at the center is offered freely as a gift. But it's, it's a challenging practice to take it as a free gift, no strings attached. So just reflect on that. And you know you're doing a good job if it makes you happy. Because it only happens that everything is offered freely because of everything that people have done previously. All the volunteer hours and the contributions in the past and you know, everything that happened before. And so, although it's difficult, we practice receiving it as a free gift and really letting it touch our heart, make us happy. So that if you decide to give back, to volunteer time or to contribute money or to have good wishes for the community or the center, then that's offered freely. It's not like a business deal. Well, I received, I took a class, so I should probably give something. And you're really looking to see if you want to give something, that it actually makes you happy to give. And that's how the center is run since 1993. We don't talk that much about donations. We don't have suggested donations. It's just once a month, I invite the community to be reflective, to really be aware of this circle of giving and receiving as a cause for happiness for you, for all of us. And it really protects the community. We don't have any big funders, and yet just in little ways, our budget is around 350000 have come in over the you know, last number of years. And that's just because people want to give. So it's like such a nice feeling. People don't feel pressured. And if you need more information, there's a sheet out by the donation bowls and there's stuff online, or you can just connect with the office and we'll give you whatever information you need. There's not really any right or wrong way. Um, Except the one sort of uh, thing to keep aware of is when we have visiting teachers, like I'm going to be teaching on the West Coast next Sunday, the next two Sundays, So like Sunday morning, Gabe Keller will be teaching next Sunday, and then Rob Reed will be teaching the Sunday after. Patricia Kalsch will be teaching on Sunday night next week, and Ramesh the following night, a Sunday night. Um, Then they're offered two-thirds of the donations. Like any of our program teachers, they get two-thirds as a gift 
to support their livelihood. And the center keeps a third for the office staff and the building and, you know, just the operation of the organization. So that's how we do it. But for me, my support comes once a year when the board offers me sort of my next year's support. And so they do it based on the collective donna um, or donations that have come into the community over the past year. So I think that's it. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.